Take your Bible with me, if you will, and open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 26 down to verse 38. And today's title is A Very Merry Christmas. But not M-E-R-R-Y, M-A-R-Y. A Very Merry Christmas. And I invite you to follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can listen and follow along as I read the scripture together, beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when, he saw, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and she'll call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray together. Lord, in these next few minutes, we talk about the life of Mary. And we come to discover that the image that we have of the Christmas story sometimes is flawed. It was not nearly so quiet and peaceful and perfect as we would like it to think that it was. And I pray, Lord God, today that we'll understand today how much you love us. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to understand today that even our Christmas celebrations aren't going to be perfect, but that's okay. That's okay. We just want to have a very merry Christmas. In your name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> I'm sure it's this way at your house as it is at my house. There is no such thing as a perfect Christmas. Now, in our mind's eye, we may actually have an image of a picture on the front of some greeting card, some Christmas card, of what we want Christmas to be like this serene setting where everything is just absolutely beautiful and everything is in its place. But the reality is there is no such thing as a perfect Christmas. Have you noticed that? There's always things that come up, challenges that arise, things that don't go the way they're supposed to go, something that changes that wasn't supposed to change at the Christmas season is just an inevitable reality. The only thing perfect about Christmas is the one who was born on that day the Lord Jesus Christ. Beyond that, every other thing is something that's not predictable and something that almost certainly you're going to have an interesting 
experience with at some point during the Christmas season. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about somebody that's supposed to show up, but they just don't show up. Or maybe somebody that shows up that you weren't expecting. I mean, we all have an Uncle Eddie. They just weren't supposed to be there. You were really hoping they weren't going to be there, and yet they showed up anyway. Or it'll be the Christmas picture you're trying to get in front of the beautifully pre-lit tree. And right before you take the picture, the lights go out. And you start changing bulbs one at a time, and you can't figure out how to get the light. The pre-lit tree is supposed to last 10 years. It's only lasted a year. It's going to be something at Christmas that isn't going to be just perfect. It may be something you cook. It may be in the, in, in the oven or on the stovetop, something that you've been thinking about and you've been planning and you wanted your whole family to enjoy. It was going to be the most delicious thing ever imaginable until you tasted it. And you realized that something in it wasn't what it was supposed to be and it wasn't nearly as perfect as you thought it could be. We all have those kinds of Christmases, don't we? Now, now, maybe you've had an occasion when you got pretty close to that, that idyllic scene of what Christmas was supposed to be like at your house, but the reality is that didn't last very long. Maybe the next year was a disaster or the year after. You know what I'm talking about in the Christmas program when the kids are, are supposed to be performing and the one who has the main part walks out for the very first time and gets stage fright and can't say a word. Or the kids that are singing and all they can do is turn and see themselves on the screen. They've never seen their picture on the screen that big before. Or the one kid that stands, he sang so beautifully at practice, but he stands now in front of a microphone and he has no idea where the pitch is. He is so far off key. It's unbelievable. You know, that's just going to happen, isn't it? just part of what happens at Christmas. If we're trying to have a perfect Christmas, we're going to be disappointed every single time. There is no such thing as a perfect Christmas. So you're working toward it, you're striving toward it, but, but it isn't going to happen. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons I like Hallmark movies. Now I realize when I say that, I, I almost have to, to surrender my man card. Because I say I like Hallmark movies. But, but here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing about Hallmark movies. That's why I like them. They're predictable. I know the plot before the movie begins, and I know how it's going to end. And it's all going to be okay. I wish they were all like that. But somehow my life doesn't work quite like that. Does yours work quite like that? I mean, when it comes to Christmas, it's not so predictable. I think the cutest story I've heard about how bad a Christmas can go, can go wrong, was one that I read this year. This is a woman writing about her Christmas. I was taking a shower when my two-year-old son came into the bathroom and wrapped himself in toilet paper. He looked so adorable, I reached for my phone and took a few shots. They came out so well that I had copies made and included one in each of our Christmas cards. Days later, a relative called about the picture, laughing hysterically and suggesting I take a closer look. Puzzled, I stared at the photo and was shocked to discover that in addition to my son, I had captured my reflection in a mirror, <laughs> wearing nothing but my phone. Can you imagine getting that particular Christmas card with that photograph in it? As a matter of fact, can you imagine ever walking out of that house again? <laughs> I mean, there is no such thing 
as a perfect Christmas, even when it comes to describing uh, the first Christmas, that Christmas those many, many years ago now. We have a tendency to have this idealized view of what it was like. We have the beautiful setting that's out in front of our house, or maybe it sits on our coffee table or up on our mantle, and we got this beautifully predictable kind of a Christmas, and everything's where it's supposed to be, and everything's doing what it's supposed to do, and there are no problems. But that wasn't the way it was with the first Christmas. There are no perfect Christmases. For instance, think with me for a moment. Think about Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias was a priest. Uh, he was serving in the temple. This is during the time when Jesus was going to be born. He was serving in the temple, and the angel Gabriel come to his, comes, comes to him and says, hey, hey, Zacharias, you're going to have a son. They're up in years. They've never been able to have any children. They'd wanted them, never been able to have any children. And now this angel's telling him he's going to have a son, and Zacharias can't believe it. This is just impossible. As a matter of fact, it says he didn't believe it. And God, and God said through this angel, God said, you're not going to be able to speak for the remainder of your wife's pregnancy. <clears throat> now think about that, men. You're married to this woman who's pregnant, and for nine months you can't say anything. And the only one who talks is her, and you can't respond. Now you ladies are thinking that might be a pretty good deal. But can you imagine? And then they tell you that your son is going to grow up He's going to live in the wilderness. He's going to wear sort of strange camel hair looking clothes. And he's going to eat bugs. I mean, that's not exactly the kind of picture you were hoping to be delivered at, at Christmas, is it? I mean, it wasn't so perfect. Even think about Mary herself. You know, God revealed to Mary what she needed to know for the time that she needed to know it. But then he revealed other things to her as the time came necessary. And aren't we glad God does that? If God just showed us everything from beginning to end, I'm afraid a lot of us wouldn't sign up. A lot of, a lot of us wouldn't want to go on the path. But he shows us what we need to know, and it helps us in those moments. And then he shows us when it comes time what else we need to know, and he did that for Mary. Think about it. <clears throat> the angel appears, Gabriel appears to Mary and tells Mary that <clears throat> she's going to have a son. How am I going to have a son? I'm a virgin. How can I have a son? That's impossible. And, and Mary's trying to figure this whole thing out. But what if she knew all of the story? What if she knew that her son was going to grow up and be rejected by his own people? What if she knew that giving birth to this baby boy meant that she was going to have to travel 80 or 90 miles to get to Bethlehem? What if she knew that after the baby was born, she was going to have to flee to Egypt to keep from the baby being killed? And, and what if she knew in those early moments, those early days, that her son was going to be on the most wanted list most of his life? I mean, the first Christmas seems so idyllic. It's so controlled. When we stop and we look at the details that we have on our, our, our uh, coffee tables or on our mantelpieces, I mean, everything's where it's supposed to be. It's so predictable. But when you stop and you look at the real story, it wasn't nearly as predictable. It wasn't nearly as easy as we make it out to be. Now, think about the baby dedication. You know, everybody loves a baby dedication, don't you? Think about the baby, baby dedication for Jesus. <clears throat> Eight days after he's born, they take him to the temple to do as the law <coughs> requires that, it, that they do. And they're met there by an old man by the name of Simeon. And Simeon takes the child in his arms, and his heart is thrilled. He's seen the, the promise of Israel, the salvation of God. He's ready now to die. And then he comes to, to Mary. And listen to what he says to her. 
Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simeon, couldn't we have just had a card? Couldn't we have had just a little nice quote of some kind in the card? Did we really have to know all of those details? You see, Christmases, our Christmases, as much as we try and as hard as we try to make them as perfect as possible, the reality is there is no such thing as a perfect Christmas. If you go back and you look at the reality of the details of the story of that very first Christmas, you realize that there were a lot of things that were unpredictable they could never have imagined or never have known, and it wasn't as perfect as sometimes we make it out to be. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to give you some snapshots. They're going to be revealing snapshots, but not quite as revealing as that woman's snapshot of her little son. I want to give you some snapshots of the life of Mary, and I want you to think with me about what it was like in that first century when Mary received this message from God. So if you're writing things down, snapshot number one, I just titled it Mary the Teenager. Think about this for a moment. This young woman lives in a rather nondescript town called Nazareth. What do you know about Nazareth? You know virtually nothing. Did you know that Nazareth is not even mentioned in the Old Testament? And when it's mentioned later on in the New Testament, when Jesus is gathering his followers, Philip uh, goes and he, he says to one of the followers of Jesus to come and meet Jesus. And what does he say? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, for the most part, if Jesus hadn't, been, hadn't lived there, if his parents hadn't lived there, we wouldn't know anything at all about Nazareth. It's small. It's a small town, virtually unknown. It would have passed, other than archaeological finds possibly, it would have passed and we would have known nothing else about it. And that's where this young woman lives, and she has grown up in a rather poor family. They don't have a whole lot. They've worked hard from day to day just to be able to live, to be able to have things to sustain their life from day to day, but they're a respectable family. They're an honorable family. They're a religious family. And this young woman by the name of Mary is betrothed, it says, to a man named Joseph. Now, you've got to understand something about betrothal. A lot of times in our newer translations, and I like to read them, I'm just thankful you're reading the Bible, but a lot of times in our newer translations, in the place of betrothed, the betrothal, they use the word engaged. But you understand engagement like we think of it and betrothal are not the same thing. I mean, if you're engaged to somebody and you want to break it off, you just take the ring off and you hand it back to him. Or you ask her for the ring back and you, know, you, you part ways. It might break your heart, but you part ways. There's no legal aspect to it. But a betrothal had legal aspects to it. And and think about this. This young woman, when she is betrothed to Joseph, is between 12 and 14 years of age. Think about your 12 to 14-year-old daughter being married. Now, obviously, the young women of this day were much more mature than the young women of our day. I'm going to prove that to you here in just a little while. But this betrothal process with this very young girl, this girl that's past puberty, this girl who is now going to be ultimately married to this man, Joseph, is a two-part process. It involves a formal, witnessed agreement to marry and the giving 
of the bride price. Did you know, men, you should have to give a bride price? And can I tell you something else about this marriage? It's an arranged marriage. <clears throat> Any of you have an arranged marriage? Any of you going to arrange your children's marriages? Now, before you just sort, sort of kick it out altogether, you might want to reconsider. We might be as successful as what marriage is at this particular moment. Uh, about five years ago, we had a missionary couple that came through and they spoke to our church. We partner with them. They grew up in a part of the world, come to America, they came to America to, to be trained and to be taught, and they were going back to that part of the world to continue uh, preaching the gospel and establishing churches, and uh, we were happy to be a part of their ministry. They came through and they shared with us. They're in one of those secured countries where we don't put out the, the information about where they are or who they are because it could endanger their lives. But they came through and they spoke to us and and they shared with us on a Wednesday evening about their ministry. And after the service, <clears throat> Mary and I were privileged to take them out to, to eat. We took them to O'Charlie's. And, and not hardly anybody there. We were sitting toward the back of the restaurant. And we were sitting across from them, this couple, their three children. We're sitting on the other side of the table from them. And, you know, we're all enjoying our meal, just having a great conversation together. And I get one of these harebrained ideas to ask a question. And the question was this. How did y'all meet and fall in love? That was the question. How did y'all meet and fall in love? You will never believe. My wife will attest to this. They were looking down at the moment, I think at their, at their plates as they were eating, and they looked up and their eyes were as big as saucers. I don't think they knew that they were going to get that question or that they were going to have to answer that question. But he looked across the table and he said to us, oh, we didn't meet and fall in love. Ours was an arranged marriage. Now, I had some more harebrained ideas. <laughs> because, you see, I don't meet very many people that have arranged marriages. And I, I have questions that I'm thinking about, you know, about arranged marriages. And I'll just summarize it for you. Basically, here, here's what it was, or here's what it is. Uh, they, don't, they don't live, they don't meet one another and marry on the basis of emotion. Emotion is the caboose. Commitment is the, is the engine. Emotion follows. Now, we, we turn it around, don't we? Oh, I feel like I love her, and I feel like I love him. I just hope I can be committed. And all that's turned around in that particular society's arranged marriage. Look, this young woman is entering into an arranged marriage between these two families, and she's 12 to 14 years of age, just past puberty, and she's ready to get married. And they've entered into this contract. The bride price has been paid. It's an incredible thing to, to watch unbehold, but you, to watch or to behold. But here's the thing: when you think of betrothal, this is not engagement. This is a legal. This is a legal matter. When this, when this, if you will, this deal was stuck. When this agreement was struck, these two were married from that moment forward. As a matter of fact, for them to get out of a betrothal, it required a divorce. Think about that. This is, this is more than just our engagement. It required a divorce. And here they are entering into this betrothal period. And for the next 12 months, they will live apart, but they will technically, legally be considered married. And then at the end of those 12 months, they'll come together, and then they will live together as husband and wives, a husband and wife. And, and they'll have a marriage with one another. And can you imagine? It's in that state when this woman is in the, in the midst of this betrothal period living apart from Joseph, but knowing that she's legally married to him already, 
that he's going to be your husband in a matter of months when the wedding takes place. But the angel Gabriel shows up. And Gabriel says, Mary, you're going to have a baby. You're going to have a baby. Did you notice what, what happens here? Notice verse 29 of chapter 1. And when he saw him, when she saw him, she was troubled. Please, please, don't pass that by. This isn't your average, ordinary Christmas. This wasn't one of those planned, predictable moments. This wasn't the perfect Christmas that you could imagine. She was troubled. I guess so. I mean, have you had an angel show up at your house, other than me or Mary? <laughs> have you had an angel show up at your house? I mean, none of us have had an angel show up at our house. I mean, if an angel showed up at our house, if an angel visited us, you know what? we'd be scared too. I'd be trembling just like you're trembling. That's just the reality. In these moments, she's, she's met by this angel who says to her, this young woman who's now betrothed to this man, you're going to have a baby. What does she say? How can that be? I think one of the greatest proofs of her virginity, that this was an, a conception, a miraculous conception, is what she says in verse 34. Chapter 1, verse 34, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Now, I know some of you are reading that and you're saying, yeah, it's that way at my house too. I don't know a real man at my house either. <laughs> that's, not what he, that's not what she means. She means I've never come together with a man in a sexual way. There's no possible way for me to be pregnant because I've never had that kind of a relationship with a man yet. I will after I marry Joseph eventually, but, but I haven't had that yet. How can I be pregnant? Can you imagine? I mean, this was not your predictable Christmas story for Mary. This wasn't going like uh, she might have thought it was going to go. It wasn't as perfect because, you know, once the angel leaves, you know what she's got to do? She's got to go find her parents, and she's got to tell her parents. And let me ask you a question. If you showed up at your parents' house and you said, hey, Mom and Dad, I'm pregnant, and it's a miracle. <laughs> let me ask you a question. What would your parents say? And they'd look at you, and they might cross their eyes for a moment, and they might say, oh, yeah, right or some other things that you might not want to hear. I mean, in this first Christmas story, we make it out to be so perfect and everything's so predictable and everything's just so beautiful, and it is beautiful in many ways, but there are a lot of things that are happening in this story that when we stop and we take a picture of it and we start looking at the details in that picture, we realize it's not nearly as perfect as we thought it was going to be. Maybe this Christmas you'll hear some unexpected news that's hard to believe. Or maybe you'll have something that happens in your life that's difficult to accept. It wasn't something you saw coming. It wasn't something that you ever expected. It was something that you hoped maybe would never, ever come, and yet you got that diagnosis or you heard from that family member or something occurred because there are no perfect Christmases. There's a second snapshot that I want you to see, snapshot number two, if you're taking notes. It's Mary as the talk of the town. Once the angel has left and Mary has gone to her family, then she takes this trip, 60, 70 miles, to where Elizabeth lives. Now, 
The Bible says that Elizabeth was her relative. Some translations say cousin, and may be a cousin. What we know is that she's a relative. And this is Elizabeth, who was married to Zacharias, who was having in, late in her life this son that's going to be born, that's going to grow up and dress in funny clothes and going to eat bugs. And she, she goes down to spend some time with, with this relative, Elizabeth. And I'm sure that they had a lot of things to talk about. We can read about some of the things that occurred uh, when they met each other for the, for the very first time. It's a fascinating read when you see what occurred the first time they saw each other. But I want you to think for a moment. She was there for three months. Do you know what? If you are three months pregnant, you're showing, right? Right? And now it's time for her to go back to Nazareth. And she heads back to Nazareth. I don't know if she was there long enough to see John born or whether she left just before John was born. We're not told that specifically. But right about the time of the birth of John, she leaves and she heads back to Nazareth, that 60 or 70 miles to get back. And when she gets back into Nazareth, everybody's looking. Hmm. Her belly wasn't like that when she left here three months ago. Let me see. January... February, March, you know, you know, a couple comes back and they have only been married a short time and you've done the same thing. Don't, don't look so self-righteous at me. Don't look so self-righteous at me. You, you, you see him, they're back, her belly's showing, she's pregnant and you go back. Now they got married on July the 7th, <laughs> August the 7th. And can you imagine Mary comes back. This is a different culture than our culture. Mary comes back to Nazareth, and people are seeing that she's showing that she's pregnant, and, and they're beginning to ask questions. And you know how rumors are and how stories are talked around town, and everywhere you go, they're sort of looking at you, and they're, you know, hmm. hmm. Uh, this is not good. And she becomes the talk of the town. Can, can you imagine what that, that's like living with that? You know, when we were, we were kids, one of the things that they kept saying to us is, when you see a bunch of kids over here and they start whispering when you walk up, that doesn't mean they're not talking about you. Well, they might not be talking about me, but it sure does feel like it, right? You know, the modern equivalent of that today is, you know, you're riding along in the car and you hear the, the, the phone ring, a text comes in, your wife has got the phone, she's, She's got a text that comes in, and she starts texting back, and, <laughs> and she texts back. <laughs> and you know what you feel like when you're driving the car? She's talking about me. <laughs> right? Maybe I just have a guilty conscience. I don't know. <laughs> she gets back to Nazareth, and there are people that are talking about her. And there are things that are being said about her. Nobody understands. You could tell this story to your blue in the face. Who would ever believe a story like this? Who would ever believe a story like this? Oh, yeah, you're a virgin and you're having a miraculous child. Yeah, yeah, I got that, yeah. You can imagine what it was like living with that kind of stress and that kind of pressure from the disapproving looks and from the conversation and the whispering that was going on everywhere. Hey, this is a little town. This isn't the big city of Jerusalem. This is a little outpost. Everybody knows everybody. That sometimes is good and sometimes that's not so good. And they're all talking about Mary. Did you see Mary's pregnant? By the way, 
It's when she gets back and she's three months pregnant that Joseph goes through his struggle. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? You read about it in Matthew chapter 1. What am I going to do? Joseph, the scripture says, was a just man. He, he didn't want to do something to hurt her. You understand, under the law, a woman, even a betrothed woman, that's a legal marriage, who was found to be pregnant could be stoned to death. That's what the law allowed. Joseph, a just man, said, I, I don't want to do that to her. I want to put her away privately. The words put her away, I want to divorce her privately. I want to do it was quiet. I don't want anybody to know about it. And what does the angel do? The angel comes to Joseph and says, no, 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 Joseph, this is okay. What's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You take her to be your wife. You see what God's plan is. And Joseph had to be convinced. I mean, even Joseph was struggling when she came back from her visit with Elizabeth and all of the talking that was going on, and Joseph was hearing it, and Joseph was seeing it, and Joseph was wondering, what in the world has happened? I mean, when you start looking at the snapshots of that very first Christmas, you begin to notice some reflections of things that you didn't see before, and you realize that there is no such thing as a perfect Christmas. And can I tell you that Mary really lived under that shadow for most of her life? You realize in John chapter 8, verse 41, Jesus is interacting with the Jewish people. They're in a debate, if you will. And they're talking about Abraham and being the children of Abraham. And the Jews speak back to Jesus this way. They say, then they said to him, that's the Jews said to Jesus, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. What? That's sort of like taking the, the, the proverbial uh, knife and jabbing it into somebody. We were not born of fornication, but you were. I mean, when you stop and you look at the first Christmas story, you realize that it wasn't nearly as perfect as we think it was. It wasn't nearly as predictable as we sometimes make it out to be, that there were things that were unfolding, that were unexpected, that made the Christmas story rather unusual when we stop and we evaluate the deeper the deeper things of the story, maybe this Christmas, maybe this Christmas for you is filled with people that are passing along stories about you or passing along stories about your children that just simply aren't true or they lack complete information and it hurts you every time you see somebody talking because you figure they're talking about you and your Christmas that you wanted to be so perfect, it was going to be one of those Courier and Ives pictures. Everything was going to be in its place. It was going to be this wonderful portrait of what you've dreamed your Christmas would be. And you got news that you weren't expecting, and people are talking, and you feel like they're always talking about you. Here's a third snapshot of Mary. I want you to get snapshot number three. Well, look, we're looking at the picture. We want to make sure we see what all is in that picture. This third snap snapshot is what I call Mary the Traveler. Now, ladies, I want you to go with me here. Ladies, all you that have been mamas, who are mamas, I want you to go with me for a moment. Or those of you that want to be mothers, you want to go with me on this trip here. Think about Mary the traveler. Because of the census, she and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem. You know how far Bethlehem is? Bethlehem's about 80 to 90 miles south. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but they didn't have, uh, they didn't have Oldsmobile. There was no Subaru or Pontiac. There's no Pontiac now either. <laughs> Uh, there were no, Chev no Chevrolet, no Chrysler. You understand? As a matter of fact, the, the most common picture you see of Mary going to, uh, going to Bethlehem because of the census where they had to register, 
because that's where their family, the lineage of their family takes them. Those common picture you have of Mary making that journey, she's on the back of a what? A donkey. Do you know the Bible doesn't say that? Never says that. The Bible never says she rode a donkey. Now, now think about this for a moment. She, she's nine months pregnant. What, what is this, ladies? I don't get it. We, we used to talk about women being you know, six months pregnant, eight months pregnant. Nine, now we talk about it in weeks. What's the deal? Now somebody says, I'm 40 weeks present. I got pregnant. I got to stop. Okay, 40 divided by four. You know, I'm trying to figure out what the number is. Here's a woman at the end of her pregnancy, toward the end of her pregnancy. Think about it. And she's got to make this 80 to 90 mile journey. Can, can you imagine? And we're not told she rode on a donkey. They had horses. They had camels. They had ox-drawn carts. They could walk. That much distance takes four to five days. Men, do you remember traveling with your pregnant wife? Honey, can we stop? 30 minutes later, honey, can we stop again? 30 minutes later, honey, could we stop one more time? You know what I'm talking about? Are y'all with me? Come on, stay with me now. These aren't so perfect Christmases. I, you know, when, we, when we stop and look at it, I mean, she's got to go all of this, different, this distance. The whole idea of her riding on the back of a donkey came from a pseudepigraphal work. Pseudepigraphal meaning somebody took the name of a famous person like James, but they weren't James and they wrote it as if they were James. It was written in the middle second century, about 150 AD. It's called the Book of James, not the book that's in your Bible. It's called the Book of James. I downloaded a copy and I read it. It's chapter 17 where it gives this story of the, of, of the, birth, the birth story of Jesus. You wouldn't believe what else is in there. You wouldn't believe what else is in that chapter. But that's where it comes from, that she was on the back of a donkey. We don't know that. She might have been on a cart. But ladies, think about that. Can just, no, no springs, no shock absorbers. <laughs> can, can you imagine? Can, can you imagine what that would be like? And you're in the late months of your pregnancy, and yet here she goes. And then when she gets to Bethlehem, there's no room. There's so many people that have come to Bethlehem that there, there are no rooms. The Bible says nothing about an inn, like a hotel or a motel. They did have those kinds of things, but there's nothing about that in Bethlehem ever mentioned. When it uses the word inn, it's talking about people who had a room in their house, and when, when family or friends or sometimes even strangers, they would exercise hospitality. We don't do that much anymore. But they would exercise hospitality when somebody was traveling, and they'd say, you can stay in our room. But there were so many people that had come to Bethlehem that there were no more rooms. There is no innkeeper in this story. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. This isn't the perfect story that we make it out to be, except for the one who was perfect that was born. She gets to Bethlehem, and there are no rooms anywhere. And the only thing they had was to be able to stay in these houses where they had the back part was the house where you lived and you cooked. And those kind of things, the front part with the wall around it was sort of a place where you brought your sheep and your goats in and you kept them inside at night. And out there in that area where the animals were kept was where the Christ child was born. Can you imagine? She was exhausted. She was probably in the early stages of labor as she got close to Bethlehem. There was no comfortable place to stay. And let me tell you something, friends. This is no antiseptic delivery room. Can you imagine the sheep, you know, sauntering up and saying, 
Bye. <laughs> Can you imagine? And then to make it all the more real, there was no midwife. There's no mention of her mother. Her mother was not there. There are no familiar friends to help her. Because that first Christmas is a lot like our Christmases, isn't it? It isn't so perfect. Not everything goes exactly the way you're planning it. It isn't this Courier and Ives picture where everything just laid out perfectly and everything is so wonderful and everything works like it's supposed to work. I mean, maybe your life this season isn't so comfortable. Maybe you've had some life changes this year that are significant for you. Maybe you've had to make some trips that were really uncomfortable, and your life has gotten complicated in some respects. It's okay. So was the first Christmas a lot like that. There's a fourth snapshot, and this is the last one. And and I just title it Mary and Her Testimony, because one of the things that amazes me is the, the testimony of this woman, this young woman. Do you remember how old she was? 12 to 14 years of age. At that age, she is betrothed, legally married to Joseph, simply awaiting the wedding day when she receives this news that miraculously conceived in her womb is going to be the Christ child. And then after the angel leaves, she makes her way to Elizabeth, spends the months there, three months there. Then she comes back. She's showing, and everybody's talking. And Joseph first thinks about putting her away. But then they've got to make this journey all the way to Bethlehem, as difficult as it is to make that journey. When they get there, there's no place for them. But the baby is born while they're there. But there's something amazing about this 12 to 14-year-old girl you just cannot miss. You know, people say teenagers, you know, they just, there's just no way they can be used of God. I've got God news for you. Jesus, uh, God used a middle school-aged young woman to bring the Christ child into this world. Think about that. But this is no ordinary middle school young woman. I want you to notice some things about her. Mary and her testimony. She knew the scriptures and quote, quoted the Old Testament passages repeatedly in her song of praise. Look over at chapter 1, verse 46. It's called the Magnificat, meaning magnificent or magnify. The, the praise song that she sings that magnifies God. Listen, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Stop there for a moment. God my Savior. Can I just tell you something? Mary is just like you and me. She was born of a human being just like you and I. She had a father just like you and I have a father. She inherited the same sin nature that the rest of us inherited because Mary needed a what? Mary needed a Savior. Mary needed a Savior. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his handmaiden. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Stop there for a moment. I'm going to read through here, but I can't point it out all to you. If you've got a study Bible out in the margin, or maybe just below the verse, or down in the footnotes, you watch how many times what I'm reading to you comes from the Old Testament. A 12 to 14 year old girl takes the Old Testament verses and turns them into a song. Listen to it, it goes on. Verse 48, for he has regarded the lowly state of his handmaiden. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. These are all quotes, by the way. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. In the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever, this gal knows the Bible. Wow. That's pretty impressive. I don't know anybody that's 30 to 60 most of the time that knows the Bible that well. I mean, we live in a biblically illiterate age. Forget about 12 to 14-year-olds. (laughs) 40 and 50-year-olds. We live in a biblically illiterate age, and yet here is a young woman whose parents had done their job and who had taught her the law of God. And when her soul is filled to overflowing with praise, she pulls Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture out of the Old Testament, and it turns into a song called the Magnificat. This is a woman that knew the Scripture This was a woman that knew God as her Savior. I've already mentioned it to you in verse 47. She says, God, my Savior. She needed a Savior, just like you and I need a Savior. She speaks of his power in verse 49a. She speaks of his holiness in 49b. This is God's holiness and God's power. She speaks of his mercy in verse 50. She speaks of his faithfulness in verses 54 and 55. This is a girl that knows God. Do your kids know God? Hey, do you know God? Do you know God's Word? Are you learning what it has to say? Are you taking it into your life? Are you memorizing it? Are you making it a part of your life? Are you reading it on a daily basis? This woman knew the Scripture. This woman knew God as her Savior. This woman believed God. Look at verse 45. When she meets Elizabeth, listen to what Elizabeth says about her. Verse 45, blessed is she who, what's the word? who believed. Blessed is she who believed. Remember what happened to Zacharias? When the angel came to Zacharias and said, you and your wife are going to have a son, he didn't believe. But when the angel comes to Mary, she has some questions to have answered, but the fact of the matter is she believed God. Hey, can 12 to 14-year-olds believe God? Absolutely they can. I'll tell you something more. Five and six-year-olds can believe God. Sometimes they actually believe God better than us 50 and 60 years old. And she surrendered her life to God. And this is where I want to bring this to a close. In verse 38, the angel has spoken to her, told her that she's going to have a son. By the way, one of the greatest evidences, if I haven't already said it to you, that she is in fact a virgin is what she says in verse 34. It says, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? meaning that she is a virgin. I mean, you might lie to your neighbor, you might lie to your parents, but you don't lie to an angel. She's telling you the facts of the matter. She had never slept with a man. But I want you to notice when the angel gives her this message, verse 38, what she says, then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This was a woman who surrendered her life to God. Wow, what a picture. When you start looking into the 
snapshots of that first Christmas, you realize it wasn't nearly as perfect as those little scenes that we put out on our coffee tables and up on our, our mantelpieces or maybe out in our front yards, that it wasn't nearly as predictable, that there were unexpected things that are going on, that it wasn't the perfect Christmas other than the perfect child that was born, that there were things that you could never have imagined, and yet there was a young woman by the name of Mary who said, Lord, let it be to me according to your word. I want to give you three, three thoughts in closing. I hope you'll write them down. Three thoughts in closing. Number one, expect that Christmas won't be without its struggles, difficulties, or changes in plans. Expect that Christmas won't be without its struggles, difficulties, or changes in plans. Can I just ask you a favor? Just, just dial down the expectations. Just, just dial them down. It's okay if something doesn't go on the table because it got burned or because it didn't taste right. It's okay. Why is this true? Why is it when you want to get your picture in front of the Christmas tree, this pre-lit Christmas tree, why is it that the bottom part of the tree always lights up, but it's always the top part of the tree where the lights go out? Why, why is that? I mean, if the top part of the tree were lit and the bottom part, you could sit it over in front of the window and the darkness would be below the window seal. And people would still think your tree was lit. But no, it's always the top part and the bottom part's below the window seal. Why is that? You get what I'm saying? I mean, Christmas tree lights aren't going to be perfect. Uh, you know, they're not going to be like your neighbors. You got some of those neighbors? They got a few thousand lights all over their house. You can spot them from space. <laughs> it isn't going to be perfect. Uncle Eddie's going to show up, I guarantee you. Uncle Eddie's going to show up. You got an Uncle Eddie in your family? I got one in mine. Expect that Christmas won't be without its struggles, difficulties, or changes in plans. Can I just tell you that if you just anticipate it, you know it's not going to be perfect, and you stop striving to be perfect, suddenly some of the stress goes away, and some of the pressure comes off. Number two, number two, be kind to people, because you never know what they're going through in life. <clears throat> be kind to people, because you never know what they're going through in life. Have you ever noticed the most miserable-looking people are people that are out shopping for Christmas? I mean, they're on a mission, and you can tell it. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. It's written all over their faces. Some of the meanest people there are at Christmas time. <laughs> I'm going to get this gift for my kid. I mean, could we just be kind? Could we just put on some kindness here? Could we show a little bit of that kindness to others in, in the midst of all that we're going through? I mean, your Christmas isn't going to be perfect. Just don't expect it to be perfect. And, and while you're going through this Christmas, could we just be nice to one another and nice to others? Uh, just, just try to do this this Christmas. Mary, about every day, sends me down to McDonald's to get her a senior coffee. I might have should have left off the senior part. <laughs> My perfect Christmas just went down the tubes. <sighs> My struggles are real. She sends me down to get her a coffee. She, she, didn't like, she didn't like Starbucks coffee. 
I'm thankful that's a four-buck coffee. I don't, <laughs> I'm thankful she doesn't. I, I go down and I order that special kind of coffee. It's like 89 cents. And, and I, I, I pull through the, through, the, through the window. And just, just try this sometime this, this season. Put, put on kindness. Go, th- go through that drive through window. And when you pull up to that first window to pay, just, just, just smile. Just, just smile at them. They won't smile back. That's all right. Just, just, just smile at them. And then you pull up to the next window, and you get to the next window, and they say, Sir, we're making fresh decaf coffee. You'll have to pull up to the third window. And I don't know if you know this or not, the third window is like no man's land. You, you pull up to the third window. If the coffee's not made and you've got to wait on it, you pull up to the third window. They, they stick you out here, and they hang you out to dry. I mean, it's, they will forget you are out there. Right? But when he finally comes or she finally comes and brings the coffee about an hour later and they, they, they reach through the window, you know, could you just thank you? Be kind. How about the people that are taking the money at the cash registers, at the stores? Could you, hey, listen, they're working during Christmas. It is not the easiest time to work. Some of them are working a second job on top of another full-time job just to make ends meet. Could we just put on a little kindness? Could we just be nice to our neighbor? You know, the one whose trash can we kick over every once in a while just, just out of meanness. Could, could we just be kind and sit it back up? And number three, and most importantly, surrender to God. And let him use you this Christmas in whatever way he desires. Surrender to God and let him use you this Christmas in whatever way he desires. What does it mean, a very merry, M-A-R-Y, Christmas? It means to come to Christmas with the same attitude and the same spirit of Mary in verse 38. Behold the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Could we just come to this Christmas and say, Lord, this isn't about me. This isn't about me making my Christmas perfect. It's not not about having the meal exactly like it's supposed to be. This isn't about having a Christmas card that looks something like in my mind, a a Christmas scene that's something like in my mind. This, This is about you, Lord Jesus. This is about the one who came in Bethlehem that I might be saved from my sins. And Lord, I just come to you this Christmas, and I just say, I yield myself, Lord, to, to whatever you want to do with my life, however you want to use my life. I give myself to you. Are you not impressed with this little, this little girl? I call her a little girl. I shouldn't call her that. With this young girl? Are you impressed with this 12 to 14-year-old girl? She knows the Word of God. She knows God. And when she's given this incredible message, she says, Lord, I just, I just surrender. Could that be your prayer this year?